You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. To worship, I, I get so excited to, to come together as a body to, to sing songs like what we sang this morning or, or any, any morning for that matter, because being able to hear everyone sing, um, whether it's, you know, just the whole body or when we can hear kind of the, the kids singing at the top of their lungs. Um, I didn't hear Jonah this morning, so he might still have to be at the beach. Someone needs to check on him. Um, but being able to hear just the whole, there he is. He just, he got shot this morning. Uh, anyways, um, just being able to hear the whole body come together to sing, to worship uh, our creator. It's just, it excites me because I just, it makes me just imagine what heaven will be like one day whenever we can just get such a small sample here of just the body coming together and worshiping. And one day, how awesome is it going to be whenever we get to be in heaven uh, and be worshiping as one, as, as the church? That's just going to be just awesome. And it's something I always think about anytime we come together and we're, we're worshiping like this. Um, so that was just a side note. It has nothing to do with this morning. I just want to get my thoughts out to you guys. Um, so that one's free. Um, anyways, so uh, this morning we are wrapping up our summer-long series that we've been working on through the book of Ecclesiastes. And I know it's so weird to you guys that we are already wrapping up a series. We just went through John. That took two years. Um, so what we're going to do to make you guys feel comfortable with what we've been doing and the pace we've been going, we're going to start over next week. So just, nah, you guys didn't really buy into that one. Okay. Well, maybe next time. Maybe next time you guys will be excited about Ecclesiastes. I don't know. We'll see. Um, <laughs> there we go. So, um, yeah, so we're wrapping up this morning. But before we uh, really dive into to the last bit of Ecclesiastes, I really want to kind of recap where we've been through this study. I know we've kind of been recapping a little bit each week, uh, but just make sure that we understand all that we have covered um, the, during this study. Uh, I just want to kind of go through that one more time with you guys. So Ecclesiastes was written from the perspective of, of the preacher or Kohelet. Um, we've said that this preacher is most likely King Solomon. And right out of the gate in the first chapter, Solomon really sets the tone for, the, for this book with, with a question he gives us in chapter 1. In chapter 1, uh, verses 2 and 3, he says, Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. So immediately we're like, yes, give me more of that. That sounds fun. Um, but then he asks his question. He says, what does a man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Simply put, he's really pondering his purpose in life. It's, it's kind of the question, that the age-old question of what's the meaning of life? And so he sets out through the rest of this book to answer that question. And so we, we subtitled our study through this, through this book of Ecclesiastes, The Pursuit of purpose. And each week, Solomon has taken us up a new mountain that he's tried to, uh, tried to explore. Um, and that mountain is him trying to find purpose in anything under the sun. And we said that this idea of under the sun simply can be just understood as apart from God. So he's chasing these different things apart from God and trying to find that meaning of life, that purpose that he's been seeking out. So he has climbed the mountain of earthly wisdom, the mountain of wealth, of accomplishments, intimacy, jobs, all these different things that he has sought out. Basically, anything that Solomon could try to find purpose in, he tested it. And not only did he test it, but he tested it to the fullest. He tested it greater than anyone has ever and will ever pursue that. 
When it comes to wealth, he was the richest man alive. When it comes to earthly wisdom, he was and will be the, the, the wisest man to ever live. He has a thousand wives and concubines. Basically, no one has ever lived and well, will ever live a more fuller life, at least from that perspective, than Solomon. And however, at the top of each of these mountains, he always draws the same conclusion, and that it's vanity. There, there's no purpose to be found in here. Going back to that first verse we read, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And we said that the, the Hebrew word for vanity here is, is hevel, and it, it means a smoke or, or, or a vapor. And the image that we're kind of given with that is this idea of chasing, chasing after the wind, chasing the smoke and trying to grasp at it just to open your hand and realize there's nothing there, that all of this pursuit amounted to nothing. And so the conclusion that we've drawn week in and week out is that no, how, no matter how much we accomplish, no matter how hard we pursue, apart from God, there's no purpose to be found in it. So this study has been very humbling at times. This study has been maybe hard to hear at times because it has shown us that some of the things that we strive after in this life will not fulfill us. But this morning, this morning we get some relief. We get the answer to this question. Once again, the question of what does a man gain from all his toils. So this morning, our message, we're titling it, Purpose is Found. In the last few verses of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is going to show us that purpose is found when we know God through his word or in relationship with God and we'll live a life to glorify him. Then, and only then, will we be able to find something that's truly satisfying, something that truly gives purpose to our lives. So if you haven't turned to Ecclesiastes 12 yet, turn with me there. And once you're there, go ahead and stand. We're going to be reading in verse 9. It says, Moreover, because the, the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. And further, my son, he admonished, be admonished by these. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just who you are, Lord, for the God who, is, who has loved us. Um, Father, I'm just so grateful for this, this time we get to come together this morning to, to worship you uh, and to continue to, to study your word and, and learn more about just who you are, Lord. Father, I pray that um, what's said here today has, has nothing to do with me, but solely points back to you, Lord. Father, I pray that, um, Lord, what we have to learn here this morning, that we can truly find purpose in this, this experiment we call life, Lord, through this. And, and Lord, if there's someone who doesn't know you, who hasn't surrendered their life to you this morning, Father, I pray you continue to convict their hearts, Lord, that they don't leave here this morning without surrendering their life to you. Father, we, we love you. We pray this in your name.
Amen. All right, you guys can be seated. So our text this morning is Solomon's uh, epilogue to uh, all his writings here in Ecclesiastes. It's him concluding his thoughts on all that he has searched out and all that he has found in this journey of life. And he, he starts this epilogue by saying, he pondered and sought out and set in, in order many proverbs. A preacher sought to find acceptable words. Solomon is commonly um, accepted as the author of, of Proverbs, of Ecclesiastes, of Song of Solomon. These books, in addition to a couple more, uh, are what are referred to as uh, the wisdom or, or the poetry books of the Bible. So he begins his conclusion by pointing out that not only did he intend to, to share his knowledge, but to say it and to do it in a way that is poetic. And he adds to it by saying, what was written was upright words of truth. So not only did he intend to say something that was poetic, something that was nice, um, uh, pleasing to hear, I guess, but uh, also words that are, are true, words that we can um, use as wisdom to, to steer our lives. And that's where we're going to find our first point this morning. Purpose is found in knowing God's word. So Solomon gives us two images here to try to understand what he means by upright words of truth. He says, the words of the wise are like goads, and the words of the scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So let's just start with the first image here. Let's start with the goads. Just by a show of hands, does anyone know what a goad is? So we have one. We got a handful, okay. Jesse knows. So the rest of you guys need to step up your game because Jesse knows. So for everyone else here, let me catch us up to speed. A goad is, a, is an instrument, a tool that would be used, exactly, uh, to be used uh, in farming. Uh, back, especially whenever Farming was done by animals, particularly oxen, to pull plows, other farming equipment like such. And this goad is an instrument. It would be a long, long stick with a sharp point on the end of it. And it would be used to poke the hind legs of the ox to, to get them to, to move or to get them to move in the right direction. It was, it was a way to basically steer the ox. So going back to what, what Solomon said here, these words of the wise are, are to move us in a particular direction. They're, they're to steer us. These wise, wor wise words, these words of truth are meant to, to steer us in some way. Now let's look at that second image, a well-driven nail. Well, when we think of a well-driven nail, what do we think of? We think of it's sturdy, it's reliable. We can trust that it's going to be there. I mean, if you think about it for a second, many of us, probably all of us, have put nails in our walls in our house to try to hang pictures, try to hang a mirror, something like that, right? We have, we have that experience, and, and we all have this time where we're ready to set the, the picture frame up on the wall, and we're, we kind of get these knots in our stomach, like, is this going to hold? Is my handiwork actually going to do something, or am I going to be picking up a glass out of my floor. See, this image of a well-driven nail is something that we can rely on. It's something that we know is going to hold. It's going to stay where it's been put. So Solomon says that these words of the scholars being like well-driven nails, these words are words that hold up over the test of time. It's not that they become outdated and irrelevant at some point. These words are reliable. They're something that we can really put our, our trust in. When we build houses, we hope that our house is still standing. We build that with nails. We, when we frame houses, we hope that that thing's still standing. It should be reliable. 
And with nails that are well-driven like that, we hope that they stay. We know that they will stay where we put them. And so these words of the scholars, they stay where they land. So whenever we hear, whenever we study these words, they stick with us. So that leaves the question, what makes these words so special? What, why are the words of the wise, why are the words of scholars something that will steer us, direct us, and, and stay with us? What makes these words so special? Well, it has nothing to do with the wise or the scholars themselves, but rather the one who gives them these words. Solomon says they are given, these words are given by the shepherd. And the title of the shepherd, you see it's, it's capitalized here in our text, so we know that this is some sort of proper noun, this is referring to some, somebody, not just some generic term, but rather the shepherd. So this, this title, the shepherd, should be something that's very familiar with us, especially as we have recently studied through the book of John. See, in John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. So Solomon's speaking of, when he says the shepherd, he's referring to Jesus. Jesus gives these words. On top of this, to kind of help support where we're going here, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So like we said a few minutes ago, these words that are upright, words of truth, that are meant to guide us, that are meant to be reliable, trustworthy, they stick with, with us because they are given by God. They are the words of God. See, this is why it's so important for us to study Scripture, to, to really make that a priority in our life, to get to know what God's Word is. It's not just because it's the Christian thing to do. It's the expectation well, if you go to church, if you call yourself a Christian, well, you, you read your Bible. That, that's not just why it's so important that we study. It's important that we study because we have to know where God's steering us. You know, we can sit here, and I'm sure if you ha you've either asked yourself this question, or if you haven't, you're going to ask yourself this question at some point in your life. But we sit there and we say, what is God's will for my life? What does he want me to do? We ask these questions, like, God, just, just show me already. Well, he says, I have. It's my word. Read it. But instead of being disciplined, instead of studying scripture, we'd rather just sit on our hands and we say, God, just, just put the neon sign in the sky already. Just Make it that clear. If we want to find purpose in life, we must know God, and that comes through studying of his scripture. So right after making this, uh, this point about how important it is to study God's word in order to, to be able to be steered, to know... Um, where to go, how, how God's directing us in life. Solomon comes back and almost seems to contradict himself and kind of makes it a little confusing on the surface. He says in verse 12, And further, my son, be admonished by these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. That last part, much study is wearisome to the flesh. All our students in here this morning are like, there it is. 
That's the one I'm writing down. Taking that one to my teacher, my professor. Scriptural, I should not be studying. <laughs> but coming on the heels of what we just said about how important it is to study Scripture, you see how that can be a little confusing on the surface at least? But let me, let me say this, and, and hopefully it'll help us better understand. Does anyone have a or anyone have an idea um, what genre of books sells the most each year? Just anybody, just throw it out. Harry Potter, it's not a genre. <laughs> so romance is number one. But shortly after that, like where you guys were mostly landing, is self-help. Self-help is the number two genre um, of, of selling books each year. It grosses annual sales of just a little over $1 billion annually. And when we say self-help, just to make sure that we're all on the same playing field here, we're talking about these types of books that are 10 steps to a better you. Become a better mom in 15 ways. Live at peace in 30 days. No, these make us feel good, right? Yeah, that's it. That's what I need in my life. You know, we could go on down the list and just of all these just titles of all these different things, but these sell like crazy because we all have a common thread, a common theme among us all is that we all have problems. And not only do we have problems, but we are trying to find solutions to those problems. And so we go to see what Dr. Phil has to say about them. We go to see what Oprah has to say about them. Or the next person who says they've got the answer, they've got the solution to our problems. However, the issue with any of these is that at best, you're just going to get some interpretation of the truth. And what most likely you're going to get is some sort of answer based off of someone's experiences. They try to provide an answer, but no one can really provide a solution. What Solomon is saying here in verse 12 is instead of trying to go from book to book, to book, and attempts to solve our problems, we need to run to Scripture. It's not that you can't or shouldn't read other books, but rather understand that only thing that has power to transform is the Word of God. You know, if you're struggling with weariness this morning. You can find rest in the Word of God. If you're feeling worried about your current circumstances, let Scripture give you peace. Whatever problem that you're wrestling with, you'll find an answer. You'll find your solution in God's Word. Commit to knowing God through his word, commit to studying scripture. With verse 13, Solomon abruptly begins his, his end, um, to end his, his epilogue uh, and draw his conclusion. He says, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. This brings us to our next point. We find purpose in fearing God and keeping his commands. This idea or this topic of, of fear of God or of the fear of God is one that often gets covered in churches. Uh, we try to explain it. And we can really, if you look it up and you try to find a bunch of sermons on it, you're going to find possibly a bunch of different answers on what does that even mean. Fear God. Well, really, how you perceive 
that fear of God really comes from the perspective that you're looking upon it. For the unbeliever, for someone who doesn't know Christ as their Lord and Savior of their life, that fear of God should be a true sense of fear, of trembling. Luke uh, 12, 4 and 5 says, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will show you the one you should fear. Fear him, speaking of God here, fear him who after he has killed has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. Paul goes on later in, in Romans to say that our sins lead to, to death. And this death that he speaks of is not some earthly bodily death but rather he's referring to an an internal separation from God that is what's on the other side for you if you are not in Christ that is what should drive fear into those who don't know Christ for the unbeliever now what about those who have surrendered their life to Christ. So about for the Christian, what does the fear of God look like for, for them? Well, Hebrews 12, 28 through 29 says, Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. For the Christian, this, this fear is not a fear of terror of, and, and of trembling, but rather a reverence or, or an awe of God. It should be something that, that motivates us to live according to his word. It should be something that motivates us to live in surrenderance to the one who has created us. Once we've reached this, this place of surrenderance and that, that fear of God, we can truly lay aside our pride and try to obey the, the second half of what this verse says here in keeping his commands. So just quick Bible trivia. Just make sure you guys are still awake, still with me. How many commands are there in the Bible? Anybody, just throw out a number. Five, 5,000, anywhere. Everyone's timid this morning. No one wants to be wrong. Ten? So, most commonly accepted number as far as commands in the Old Testament. We're just going to look at the Old Testament here. There's... 613. A lot, a lot's the number that most people throw out. There's, there can be some debate, but uh, the importance here is not necessarily the exact number that we're going for. We're not trying to be like, that's it. That's the one we're going to nail down. Um, but rather, our focus, um, and, our, and the reason I bring this up, um, is if there's 613 plus or minus whatever commands, then which ones do we prioritize? Which ones do we obey? What do we do with these? And that's kind of a question that um, the Pharisees asked too. They asked Jesus in um, Matthew uh, 22, verse 36. They said to Jesus, they said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus takes all these commands and basically summarizes them into these two verses. Love God with everything you have. 
and then love others. But love God above all, with everything you have. That means that we're to love him above our plans that we have and try to make for ourselves. Love him above the things that we desire, whether that's things, experiences. Love him above our spouse, our kids, our families. See, when we know God through reading of his word, and we have that reverence, we understand that he's the creator of all things. It's easy to see why he's to be put first in our lives. See, though we are sinful, and therefore it really makes it impossible uh, to do this perfectly, to love God above all, we can at least uh, more clearly understand what, is, what Jesus means there in that Matthew 22 passage about loving God. But it becomes a little bit more um, muddy whenever we look at the second half of that, of love your neighbor as yourself. See, is anyone familiar with the uh, self-love movement that's kind of become more popular? Some? Well, in case you're not, this idea of of the self-love movement is that you can't care for others before you care for yourself, before you first take care of yourself. And on the surface, I mean, you can you can kind of get talked into it. You can kind of be like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, the idea of like, I can't fully love my wife until I'm filled, or I can't fully care for, you know, the people at church until, you know, I, I've got something in me. You know, we can kind of rationalize this in our heads. But often, and this is the issue with it, often the solution here is less about self-love and more about self-indulgence. We try to say, I need you to show me something first. I need you to pour into me before I'm going to pour into you. And becomes something like, I need, I need, I need. And this is in direct opposition to what Jesus said in Luke 17, 33. He said, whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So what does it mean in terms of the command to to love your neighbor as yourself? Or to live sacrificially for one another. It means that because God has first loved us, we are going to choose to love those around us, whether that's our spouses, whether that's going to be the people at church, whether that's our neighbors, whether that's whoever we come in contact with. We're going to show them love, not because of anything they've done, good or bad, but rather because God has first shown us love. That's what drives us. That's what motivates us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's not conditioned on on anything that you can do, but solely what God has already done for us. We find purpose in living in reverence of God and loving him and his people. So Solomon closes Ecclesiastes by saying this in in verse 14. He says, For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. One day, everything we've done will be brought to light. The good things you've done, the sins you've tried to keep hidden, every action you've taken, every word you've said, every thought you've thought, all of that will be exposed. 
And that brings us to our final point this morning. We find purpose in this life by pursuing holiness. In 1 Peter 1, 13 through 16, it says, Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your arrogance or ignorance, but as he who has called, called you as holy, you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written, be holy for I am holy. We're called to live obedient to God's word. When, when God calls us to be holy, he's not saying be perfect. I think that's something that we don't always grasp. We are sinful. We are not going to be perfect. Instead, when we're called to be holy, he says he's, we're being called to be set apart from the world. To live a life that is just different than everyone else. The purpose of us living and pursuing holiness is that whenever the world looks at the Christian, they look and see, ah, that's different. And what we see time and time and time again in the Old Testament is God saying, so they will know that I am God. See, our pursuit of holiness, our living a life trying to, though we might fail, go after this life that's holy, set apart, is supposed to be, as a Christian, our testimony to the world. It's so whenever the world looks at the church, they don't just see another club. They don't just see another group of people who just looks exactly like them. Our pursuit of holiness is a way that we can tell the world that God is holy, holy, holy. Now going back to verse 14 here in Ecclesiastes, you know, if you're someone who's sitting here this morning skeptical about this God that we've been talking about, you might be wondering, now, who is God to judge our deeds? What, what are his credentials, basically? Well, let me tell you. Genesis 1 tells us that God created all things. Everything from, from animals to vegetation to everything you see, including humans. Then in, in Genesis 1, 31 says, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And not only that, but Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. That means that God created you, he created this world, but then he specifically also created you. And he created you for a purpose. Now, we also know that through Romans it tells us that sin entered this world and fractured it. Fractured that relationship with God. Not, not as a surprise to God, but nonetheless fractured that relationship. And our sin has created this divide with God. Every one of us, every one of us has sinned against God, and that sin warrants judgment. Sin warrants judgment from God. Since God is holy and just, the punishment for that sin 
like we've said before, is death. That death being this eternal separation from God. And that, out apart from, from God, that's what all of us have to look forward to, is this eternal separation. When we stand before God and he's and all is exposed, apart from God, or apart from, yeah, God, we all stand there with all that sin, every thought, every action, every word, exposed. And that's warrant of, of that eternal separation from God. But God sends his son, Jesus, to the earth, to, to live a perfect life, to live a life fully to the glory of God, and to ultimately be that atonement on the cross. Take that sin, that, that judgment for that sin that each of us have earned, and he bore that on the cross. So that if we are to surrender our lives to him, that judgment is not ours. That wrath is not ours to, to carry. I'm going to have the band come back up. And at this point, I just ask you guys to, to, to bow your heads, close your eyes, because I want you just to really think about that for a minute. Think about what we just said there, that our sin, your sin, my sin, has created this divide with God. It has made us unholy. But yet, instead of you having to sit there and accept those consequences, someone has stood in there in that gap for you. Someone who has come, made a way for you. That, that that wrath never has to be felt. That separation from God, that eternal separation never has to be felt. But as we talk about all this this morning, you know, we can take in all this knowledge. We can talk about living a life with purpose. And it's great knowledge to have, but it comes down to what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do with this Jesus who, who died on the cross for your sins? Are you going to sit here this morning and say, it's great to know Thanks for the information. I'm going my way. Are we, going to, are we going to say, I'm going to live this life with purpose, knowing what Christ has done on the cross for me? Are we going to get to know God through his word? Are we going to surrender our life to him? Maybe you're sitting here this morning and you say, you know, I've, the only purpose I've been living for this whole life so far is just for whatever I desire. And maybe you're drawing the same conclusions that Solomon has been, been drawing, that I can chase it, it's cool for a minute, but at the end of the day, I still feel empty. 
I'm still searching. And guys, I plead with you, don't leave here today still searching. If you're looking for purpose, if you're looking for what's the point of this life, we've spelled it out right here this morning, is a life lived knowing God and a life lived to glorify God. So if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior this morning, I want to give you a, a chance to, to do something about that. Scripture says that surrendering our life to Christ is something that is simple in, in the process, but maybe tough to do. Because we have to realize that our lives, or the actions we take, the things that we do in our life, are sinful. We have to realize that that sin has separated us from God. And we have to be willing to accept that Christ laid down his life on the cross for me and for you. So if you're at that place this morning and you say, you know, I'm tired of living this meaningless life the way I've been living. I want to surrender my life to Christ. Then just say that to him this morning. There's no special words that you can say. There's no um, magic words that can be spoken. But rather it's just complete surrenderance. And I simply just want to, to help you find those words if, if that's where you're at this morning. So if that's your heart, then I just cry out to God and just say something like, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for living a life trying to glorify myself, trying to seek out what I can get from this world. And Lord, I want to live for you. I want to live with a purpose to glorify you. So, Father, I lay down my life before you. If you prayed something like that this morning I simply want to know how I can be praying with you I want to know how I can plug you in and, and be surrounded by other believers to help encourage you on this walk
So if that's you this morning, I simply just ask that you just slip up your hand. It takes me a second to look around the room. Well, I pray that that means each of us have already made that decision to give our life to Christ. But my question for you now, then, is are we living a life with purpose? Are we living pursuing these things, pursuing holiness in our own lives? Are we committed to getting to know God and His Word? Are we keeping His commands? Or are we still trying to wrestle with this idea of finding purpose in things this life can, can give us, but that won't fulfill? So I'm going to turn over to the band. I'm going to be up front. Josh is in the back. We're happy to pray with you. If you just want to stay where you're at and pray. But I'll go back to what we said a few minutes ago. Don't just hear these words this morning but do something with them.